All right, we're good. We're we're cool. we're recording again. So, critical support for San Francisco? No. No. <laughs> Just it's like it's so it's so smelly. That city's so smelly. It's covered really? with garbage. Why? Why uh, is it so smelly? Wait, New York's like uh, that. I thought that was it, large see, see, yeah. See, that's the thing in New York. It's like hot so it kind of makes sense that it's smelly in san francisco they just have like the city is just so so bad at taking care of its homeless people that people just shit and pee everywhere and there's no public bathrooms anywhere like even less than seattle there's less public bathrooms than seattle and it's so expensive you just the bougiest most overpriced everything is in san francisco by their own logic, you would think that that would hit their like property values at some point. Well, I think yeah, but you so think it's like it's like yeah. Pioneer Square is you know really expensive, but yeah, that's true. You know, it smells like piss, and there's a lot of homeless folks hanging around, and you know that's whenever stabbings happen. It's always in Pioneer Square. Okay, so beyond the the smelliness of San Francisco, I I would say the entire Bay Area is trash basically <laughs> like, why, why the whole bay area um it's basically the most unaffordable place in the country to live yeah. and it's completely been overtaken by like tech bros yeah. and the gentrification is just beyond belief and because I don't know. I just personally, I just don't like the Bay Area at all. <laughs> I lived there for a long time, and I, I've lived in various parts of it, and they were all shitty. Yeah, for me, it's just the the extreme inequality and the fact that you see, and like more than just in sort of the you know numeric like, oh yeah, you know, fifty percent of all new income goes to the top one. It's more than that. It's that you have like on one hand like these extreme tech bros. Like libertarian, I want to go John Galt, drive mm-hmm. my like create my island in the middle of Pacific tech bros, and then like on the other side you have like absolutely widespread devastation from gentrification and a, and a, ho- a housing crisis that is seemingly without end. Like it's just <laughs> even more than I like. I don't know a San Francisco that was not in a housing crisis, right? We do have some memory of a Seattle that was not in a housing crisis. I can't think of a San Francisco that wasn't. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, just that extreme contrast. Uh, and also just, you know, obviously the, the sheer disdain that uh, the wealthy part of that equation have for everybody else. Yeah. I visited San Francisco one time with my partner and we were like, the city is so beautiful. I mean, the weather is really nice. That's like definitely a plus there the weather is incredible and it generally looks pretty it generally looks really nice and then we were sitting there talking about how nice it was and then in the coffee shop we were in uh on the news uh breaking news new report shows that san francisco is the most expensive city in america with the average bedroom one bedroom costing thirty five hundred dollars holy average one bedroom the average one bedroom $3,500. They've just been, like, completely unable to do anything about their landlord class. Like, that's that's what that must mean. Like, the real estate is just... Which is funny, because it's not like there's no one else in San Francisco with money. 
who might want like maybe not real estate to completely run the show? Uh, I think what's somewhat happened is that San Francisco became uh, the the real estate finance kind of capital of the Bay, and then the other parts of the Bay, while also being affected by gentrification, sort of took on all those other interests. So, like, right, because the big tech companies aren't based in aren't in San Francisco, are they? No, they're based no, they in are. Silicon Valley. Um, oh well, a lot of them are in San Francisco. Really big, like the you know Apple and Google and. They maintain yeah. San Francisco offices, and they use San Francisco as sort of like in the same way that we, you and I, Jacob, grew up in the suburbs of Seattle. But like, if anyone asked, we're from Seattle, and we would—that's where we would take people when things happened, or at least my family would. But yeah. what I mean is just like we use—they use San Francisco as like the cultural chit of their of their company. When in reality, they uh, are all mostly headquartered in Silicon Valley, which is some of the most fertile soil, apparently, in uh, the United States. But they just paved it over for Silicon Valley. Huh. Yeah, in the Central Valley of California, it's supposed to be. Don't they grow silicone there? It's not how it works. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. That was a, yeah. That's where the little uh, the computer chip bushes are grown, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Microchip bushes. They, they, uh, I know. They take it's it's a green fruit kind of about the size of a mango. You slice it super thin. That's where you get motherboards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really. I mean, it's a it's a tragic situation of all the all of the migrant laborers that they bring in. You know, really horrible conditions picking in the microchip fields. <laughs> uh, you know, really long hours. They're generally you know not given the same worker protections as as even other agricultural workers. You know, <laughs> I think we we really should be doing more to support the the microchip farmers and you know, migrant laborers in the, in the c- computer uh, farm industry. Stanford is nicknamed the, the farm. The campus is nicknamed the farm. I remember that. Like, was whenever... Like, out in the... It was, like, out in the farms or something? Um, it just looks sort of, uh, like, agricultural in uh, a lot of the... I'm not really sure what the genesis of that, other than the... Oh, yeah, and actually, they used to have, like, a, a kind of uh, significant, like, agricultural department, like, way back, <laughs> way back in the day. Oh, you got to grow those computer chips somewhere. Yep. Uh, okay, so. Oh, it's because it was the, the site of Stanford is the, was the farm owned by Leland and Jane Stanford. Ah, yes, the Leland Stanford University. They built the university on their farm. Gotcha. Yeah, my sister went to a school that was similar. And actually, she went to Rose Holman, which is in Terre Haute, which is where Eugene Debs is from. And I didn't know that before I visited there. And so I started seeing, like, Eugene Debs stuff as we were driving around in the car. I'm like, wait, what? And then I'm like, oh, he's from here. Oh, Terre Haute. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And so... uh, the school she went to was called Rose Holman. The Holman part comes from the railroad industrialist that Eugene Debs at one point worked for uh, and then opposed. And then uh, Rose comes from the family who donated all the land to where the university is now. So, I mean, it's not any different from like the University of Washington naming a bunch of their buildings after Nordstrom or Paul Allen or Bill Gates or there's Neil Dempsey, who's like one of those like, really rich dudes who doesn't you know become notorious for being really rich they just kind of are and are quiet about that uh and like wielding their power in that way anyhow so 
no critical support for Stanford or the Bay Area. I mean, do we want to send it to California? No critical support <laughs> for California? I'm just thinking of the President of the United States of America song uh, called uh, Fuck California. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. It's there's some good here. things in the Bay, Bay Area. Like, there's some good like things. Every, like, every Maoist group is based in the Bay Area. Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> no. That's not, that's not points. That, is, that, is that what you're talking about? No, I was thinking of the oh. coup. Um, oh, and that's right. Yeah. Sure, the coup and is all, there. And all our com- comrades there and whatnot. I have family there, too. So... Yeah, they're fine, but they're also not necessarily like endogenous to California. Like you got <laughs> out, so <laughs> this is true. I feel like the good things about the East Bay area are sort of good, despite of what's generally going on, rather than like <laughs> exactly. It's like in the same I mean, way that like tortured artists are not good because they're tortured. In fact, it's somewhat a miracle that they are good despite the fact that they're tortured. So I hate to be that guy, but like, if we're gonna not give critical support to San Francisco, what about Seattle? <laughs> I mean, how 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 far behind are we? I mean, we're several we're we're years behind, I think. Um, but it's That's Seattle good. has so much else going for it that the Bay Area doesn't have. It's just a way better city, and it's also like we talk about the Seattle freeze. Oh, people aren't friendly. You can't make friends. It's not. My anecdotal experience is the opposite. It's way harder to make friends in the Bay Area than in Seattle. Well, and Seattle has, yeah, Seattle has a bunch more things going on. I'm not sure it's even on the same track as San Francisco. Like, I mean, we, we talk about it like, you know, if, you know, if we don't stop these real estate interests, it's going to become like that. And it's like, that's, that's true to a degree. But like we just said, like San Francisco functions as this. It is the way it is because the rest of the Bay Area is the way the rest of the Bay Area is, whereas Seattle is, like, not even the richest city in the, in the area. It's like instead of having, like, a body of water and then Oakland, we have a body of water and then Bellevue. Right. <laughs> right. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a good thing to point out. Um, I think this, there are similarities, though. Like, you know, geographically, there's some – I mean, we're not as big, but we have similar sort of – the layout of the cities have similarities in terms of like the peninsular kind of thing, lots of water. Yeah, north to and south. North south in the middle, water on both sides, a general north-south orientation, the fact that they both exist on land. Is that a one? <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Both exist on land. <laughs> they were both ports. Um, I, yeah, I think the problem... So basically the what I'm hearing is that is Seattle is just the better version of San world? Francisco. Uh, I guess you could say that. I don't know. I don't know. We have a stronger industrial sort of vibe, you know, like there's a, there, there's a strong desire to preserve industry um, because there's just a long history of it here. So, you know, whether it's Boeing manufacturing or the port or the train yards or Fisherman's Terminal or the ship canal, like there's all these remnants of industrial Seattle that are still fairly industrial, and uh, there are interests that want to keep it that way, business interest and like labor. Interests like Boeing? Oh, and like major shipping um, industries, like, um, uh, yeah, like uh, the ones that are using the port. And yeah, that's somewhat changing, you know, because the cruise industry is starting to come in and wants to take up some of the terminal space. Tacoma has got 
honestly like logistically more going on for it uh it's not as geographically constrained their port as opposed to seattle's uh in terms of you know cross-loading things onto trains or trucks or whatever um but also like tacoma's like too far away to be seattle's oakland right it's not it's not really the function it can have at least not at this present time with things arrayed as they are really i mean it's like during traffic it's like an hour and a half but i I can't imagine you can get to oakland that much faster during traffic it's i don't know yeah Yeah, no the that's another reason the public transportation um situation for the bay area is trash it's like (laughs) when i so like palo alto is not that far from from like berkeley oakland or san francisco uh, it would take maybe, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, I think, uh, somewhere around there to drive if under normal traffic conditions. To take public transportation, uh, it would regularly take me like three hours one way oh. um, when I was going back and forth between those locations. And so they have BART, which is, which is fine as far as it goes. But if you, if you want to go to the peninsula area or virtually anywhere beyond where BART goes, you have to take Caltrain, which is like stupid and clunky and doesn't, and unreliable. And yeah, it's just like BART, I guess is okay. But like in general, they, their, their public transportation situation is inferior to ours. Not true. I just looked it up. Uh, Palo Alto is 33 miles from San Francisco. That'd be like trying to get from Seattle to like Marysville on public transportation. That could easily take you three hours and it'd be on like buses. Okay. Okay. But the difference is Marysville is not a big city that demands to have good public transportation. Like, like Tacoma is like 30 miles away and it does not take three hours to get to Tacoma. Like even during rush hour, if you took a bus, or you could even take yeah, exactly. um, you could take the the train. Oh, the sounder. The sounder, yeah. I mean, during rush hour, like oh, the sounder sucks yeah, because yeah. it only runs a few hours a day. But even if you took a bus, you could probably get there in an hour and a half. Right. So I just looked up the public transit as well. Um, Google Maps says that uh, from San Francisco to Palo Alto on Caltrain is an hour two minutes from. Uh, okay, right now during coronavirus. No, th- this is just what it estimates in general. You can compare that to uh, Seattle to Tacoma on the 594 would be 59 minutes. So, and it's like both of those would take longer in real life because Google massively underestimates how long public transit takes. But just in terms of sure how how long it should take is virtually the same. That's not true. Hey, I I can tell you that that's not true unless things have substantially changed which they may have it takes an hour to get to the from berkeley coming from berkeley it takes an hour just on the bart which drops you at the caltrain station uh which then takes another half hour and with like berkeley berkeley to palo alto yes it berkeley to palo alto you would have to berkeley is farther north yeah google estimates an hour 47 from uh from, from Berkeley to Palo Alto. I'm going to take our expert testimony over Google. I just don't think Google, I mean, there's so many variables with taking public transit. Like, where are you in the city starting from? And like, how do you get to the bigger station, which takes you the long distance and all that kind of stuff? And on the weekends, I don't know. Cal, 
Caltrain and BART don't run as often, but especially Caltrain. So, yeah, yeah. I mean... I, I just think it's I, ridiculous to claim that, Sam, that the Bay Area has worse public transit than Seattle. Seattle has terrible public transit, infamously terrible public transit. I've heard a lot of other people say that's the only thing that at the Bay Area actually is going for it, is it has a halfway functional public transit system. Uh, the BART yeah. is functional. The BART is, is halfway functional, and it's fine. It's good. Beyond that... It's terrible. Like, the public transportation is terrible. The buses are way worse. Than, again, this is based on my experience from living there and uh, years ago. I don't know, five years ago. But I, I didn't do a ton of commuting in San Francisco itself, so I can't really speak to as well to how, like, how well the, the various things they have. And they have a bunch of different things, like streetcar-type things and, and whatnot. But, yeah, in general, I think Seattle beats the Bay Area in public transportation. I mean, I'm going to jump in as the person, uh, as the public transit planner. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm pulling rank. Um, dun, dun. Seattle has had more success at retaining and growing ridership in recent years. But we shouldn't confuse that necessarily with it being a good system. It's definitely just the best system given the geographic constraints, and so people use it because that is the most effective way to get around in a lot of, at least during the peak hour, not now, definitely not now. But in terms of sort of legacy service, the number of services, just having a functional rail system, I would say the Bay Area does better fairly clearly. Um, but the Bay Area also has a lot of problems where they have a lot of different, like they don't have like a King County Metro, like that serves the whole county. Like almost every city has the option to opt in or opt out of transit. And so you get this huge confederated patchwork of transit that doesn't really make sense uh, and doesn't necessarily have good transfers between them either. And so from a system design perspective, that's a difficulty with the Bay Area. Another one is the San Francisco street grid is even crazier than Seattle's. Um, and so it's very difficult for them to design lines to go across town or what have you. Uh, Seattle has issues and we have a lot of, you know, grids that don't make sense. And that's why like in Seattle, like east-west travel is so difficult because we don't have many large east-west streets. Because all the uh, hills run east-west. I well, mean, that run east-west. So that means that they're all the main arterials and the whole landmass is arranged north south right exactly uh and you know the bay struggles with that as well but at the very least we have some functional main arteries that we can use and uh the san francisco doesn't quite have that going for it so i think we've we've already uh, cast our votes for this this topic here Right. Should we do the, uh, the, the introduction? <laughs> no, but I, 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 just, I just want to be clear. We voted no critical support for the most general we got was the Bay Area, right? We didn't no crit- we yes. have to discuss anything substantive beyond that. Yep, yeah, burn it yeah. down. Okay. Down okay. with the Bay Area, down with uh, San Francisco. Uh, no conclusion on California. <laughs> yeah, California the, the for a few trips. So. Right. Yay, provincialism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Fuck the 49ers. Am I right? Am I right, guys? You Fuck can walk them. into the ocean, Gabe. You can just walk into the ocean. Football. Am I right? Okay. Actually, I'm not sure you are. It, it may or may not happen. Right. This season. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, we have until August, so 
Hopefully. Yeah, wild stuff could happen, but yeah. So sure. Yeah, maybe Trump will get coronavirus. Oh, man. I mean, Boris Johnson has it, so. He does. That's right. Yeah. How They're many? Still... Is it more than three, like, evil world leaders at this point? Uh, Bolsonaro didn't have it, or at least has denied having it. We don't I... know if he does. Mm, but aren't, like, a bunch of his inner circle has it, right? Uh, some of his uh, staffers who interact directly with him do have it. Okay. So he's probably uh, lying. I is mean, that, I wouldn't joke? be shocked. I mean, it's the dude who fell on the floor in his bathroom and that leaked out in a sort of huh. s- funny way as well. Um, who else has it? Rand Paul. Oh, yeah. Rand Paul's got it. Uh, Justin Trudeau's wife has it. Klobuchar's husband. Oh, right. Wow. Klobuchar's husband. <laughs> uh, a bunch of leaders of Iran have it. Well, shall we, uh, shall we get started? Yes, we shall. Okay. Hello. Welcome to Critical Sport, your source for uh, com- conditional, heavily caveated, completely correct takes uh, on whatever quarantine-related nonsense we want to talk about. Or maybe just shit-talking California. I don't know. This sounds haggard. We've been, we've been, <laughs> no, that's we've been roughing it through the quarantine. I was just thinking that we've been way too formal with our intros and it's kind of stupid and I get this weird tone of voice, but that's mostly just because I listen to it too much. When I'm... <laughs> Editing's uh, a drug, kids. Be careful. Yeah. Make sure you talk to your children about editing. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, we have an email address, uh, criticalsupodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Um, if you're one of the three people who have downloaded our last episode, uh, you'll already know this, but um, you can, or actually two, because one of those is definitely me. Um, <laughs> every, I mean, I'm, I'm subscribed. I, I don't listen to it when we do it, but uh, it is, uh, yeah, downloads onto my phone. But yeah, you, uh, you can email us topics and we will talk about them. And I'm just going to check real quick to make sure no one has emailed us a topic. I'm like 90% sure no one has. We know some of you want to, okay? We've asked you to email us in person, and so you should do that. Do we have anything? Nope. Oh. <laughs> this, this, this email account has not received an email since February 5th. Oh, wow. Woo. Lying follow. Saying we were, there is, this, <laughs> the spam folder is empty. <laughs> that is how... That is how irrelevant our podcast email address is. Hey, we'll get there. We'll get Don't there. Don't even deign to send us spam. If you build well, it, they I will come. I can go sign us up for a bunch of shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> can just go online and start signing us up for everything. And why don't we subscribe to all the different, you know, like uh, socialists and activists, sign every petition with that email address, you know, <laughs> sign fill out every contact form with that email address and pretty soon we'll be getting like 700 emails a day you know just from just from socialist groups it'll be great i think i'm down to like one a day from bernie i think they must be like doing other things with their time or something uh that's probably for the best <laughs> i was getting like four or five a day from just bernie was, for a it while was excessive it was like this and is text point even of effectiveness like it like, there's a point where you just delete all of them. Like, now when I get one, I usually at least glance through it. Right. Yeah, if you only get one, you know. Yeah, well, and if it, you know, as I want to actually know what he's saying about, like, coronavirus or something or some shit. Anyhow, uh, does anyone have a topic they want to start with? I can put one forward if no one has one. 
Uh, I have one that's actually kind of related to what we were just talking about. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. start there and uh, see where we're going. Uh, should we introduce ourselves first, though? I mean, sure. Uh, My yes. name is Gabe. <laughs> I'm Preston. <clears throat> I'm Teresa. I'm Jacob. <laughs> if it's not exceedingly obvious already, we're we're meeting over Zoom, like like uh, everyone else is. So, right. So Zoomer memes that's, that's... for self quarantines. <laughs> that's why we have such high quality audio on this episode because because we're using Zoom this time. Yes. Right. This is why it's going to take me significantly less time to edit. Seriously, trying to integrate like God, that was very difficult. Um, yes, yeah, so we're all on one mic. It'll be great. Yeah. Okay. So what I've got is um, critical support for surveys that are actually fundraisers. Oh. <laughs> oh. Because you get these emails or like you see these ads and it's like, you know, it's either from like Donald Trump and it's like, do you support socialism? And it's like, I totally want to take that survey and like fuck with the results they're going to get. Or it's like, or it's from Bernie and he's like, which issues are important to you? And it's like, I want his campaign to know what issues are important to people. But then you get to the end and it's like, how much do you want to donate? And it's like, there's not an option. <laughs> it's like, there's not oh. an option to say no. No, and that's, and that's where they, it's, just, it's, it's like, oh, this isn't really a survey. This is a fundraiser. And it's like, if it's Donald Trump, I'm not going to donate to Donald Trump. And if it's Bernie, I am going to donate. I'm mean, probably not right then, but like I, I've donated to Bernie a bunch. Probably not going to now that I'm unemployed, but, uh, and he's not. Anyways, uh, <laughs> if there's another debate and he, uh, like, if he's mean enough to Biden, I will donate again. But other than that, I'm, I'm probably not going to donate to his campaign again. Agreed. Um, Agreed. There was not enough sass in the last debate. No, he, like, he got close to it. Uh, well, I don't know. Like, I think that the uh, his his last speech in Congress was pretty impressive, though. So maybe maybe this maybe that will piss him off enough that he'll be like a little more something. Anyhow, um, so it's like on the one hand, I totally get why campaigns do this. It's probably super effective. On the other hand, it's annoying, and I wish they wouldn't. So, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I don't know. I feel, in my opinion, I, in general, I don't like organizing tools that are purely a trick to get money or information from people. Like, like I get it. Of course, if you're taking, if you're getting a petition, you want to, you want to save the information you get from the petition. But I don't like when that's all it is. And it's like, you know, it's like if you're taking the survey I, I, I just don't, I don't like, I don't like deceptive organizing tactics personally. It just kind of rubs me the wrong way to be like asking, Oh, we care about what you think, except we're, that's not, we're not actually, we don't actually care about this in the context of that survey. You know, personally, I, I just, I don't, I'm against pure deceptive organizing tactics. And so I would not give my critical support to those surveys because I think they're just like annoying and, try to make you feel more important than you are. I, I don't know, maybe, unless they're really using them in some way to shape the campaign, but it doesn't seem like they are. It just seems like it's a way to get money. <laughs> yeah, oftentimes yeah. they're just push-pulls. You know, it's, uh, it's particularly obvious with the Trump ones, but I think also the Bernie ones, other than which issues do you care about, like every other question, because, given the fact that you're looking at a Bernie website, 
is a push pull, right? They're not actually asking the question. They're saying, yes, you know, I'm trying to get you to say yes to all these things so that you continue your momentum down to the, to the finance ask. I, it's one of those things that is a tactic that is used and can be used effectively. But I also agree with Gabe that it seems insufficiently political. It doesn't politicize the issue as much. Yeah, and it doesn't drive people into any greater action than maybe donating, you know? It's like, all right, sit at home. Just let us know how you're feeling about stuff. Give us some money. Thanks, you know? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a way to get people out and engaged in. I mean, obviously right now we're not trying to get people out into the streets, but in general, I think that's, that's the idea. You know, to me, it it just creates a feeling of, Oh, great. We're, we're, we're listening to you and we're, you know, we use your money to to hire the right people to do. So thanks for that. Right. And that, that'd be one of our more general critiques of the of Bernie Sanders' campaign as a whole, which is like however much they, they, they were mobilizing people for these sort of concrete canvassing tasks, a lot of times there really wasn't a next step. Like there wasn't a, like a lot of times there would be like when you were canvassing, like, and they, they didn't have, like they didn't encourage people to uh, ask for a donation or to, to ask to come volunteer with you or, or, you know, these other things. I don't know. I think they're, They've gotten a little bit better recently about that. Uh, the last like several times that I've had a had someone text text me from the Bernie campaign, they actually did prompt me um, to do several different things. It usually wasn't followed by by a donation ask. It's true, which is kind of weird. Like uh, that's to me that seems like yeah. I don't know. The, the, the whole survey, um, that's a real, that's really a donation ask is, I agree, kind of annoying. But on some level, isn't campaign outreach about being annoying? Like you are trying to like get in someone's face and force them to interact with you. And that has, that can be kind of confrontational and like being a little bit, I don't know. I I think that being sort of assertive to the point of being annoying can be effective and like we shouldn't necessarily be afraid of doing that to me it's not so much the annoying thing and interested to what you're saying i don't think that most of the bernie communication is like this it's not the way they communicate in general it's just these specific emails that are like we're taking a survey about what issues matter to our supporters the most and it's whenever i do those it just feels totally uh deceptive like it feels like oh, you're not actually taking a survey of what your members, of what your supporters care about. Yeah. Okay. To me, it's not, yeah. it's not the overall thing. It's this one specific tactic of like an excessively deceptive way of getting contact information or, or donations. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. Um, so where did we land? Let's just take a vote and move on. Uh, critical support for... I, I think I will say critical support for surveys that are fundraisers or surveys that are actually fundraisers. What, what do you all? I'd say no critical support. I'm going to say no as well, because if you're going to be annoying, at least bring some political content to it. And this isn't, this ain't it. This ain't it, boss. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm pretty much in that same camp. <clears throat> it's not a hard no, but yeah, but I'll still say no. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Three to one. We have made a decision. So next time you see one of those surveys, uh, 
print it out and tear it up. <laughs> or try to get a negative number in the donation box and see what happens. <laughs> try to get a negative number. That means if you get a one money, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bernie's go- <laughs> All right, Ber- Bernie is going to do the stimulus checks himself. Anyone who yeah, gets negative right. $2,000 in the donation in actual <laughs> <laughs> If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. Anyhow, so, who's got a topic? Uh, I can go in if nobody has one. Hit it. Uh, Do it. All right. So, obviously, we are in the time of coronavirus. We are living our life on Zoom and at a growing moss on our chairs. <laughs> and so, uh, we, I figure we should do some topic that is somewhat relevant to, to this issue. And so, I am proposing uh, critical support for the specific business, Boober Eats. Uh, Boober Eats? So, Boober Eats is, uh, was a post by none other than some strip club in Portland that posted on their Facebook page saying, hey, you know, uh, we're going to start doing takeout. It's Boober Eats. Uh, and it was originally a joke, but then so many people liked it that they decided to do it. And so what they do now is instead of, you know, they open the strip club kitchen, <laughs> they make meals. Strip club kitchen. Do uh, they bring a buffet to your house that you can pick through? <laughs> it's not a, bunch a buffet. Of old shrimp, a bunch of old shrimp that's been sitting out all day. Oh, gosh. Uh, no, they don't get that quite recreated. <laughs> they don't recreate that experience. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, they put the food in the containers, you know, just like takeout. And the delivery, there's a delivery driver who is separate from the stripper. So, you know, there's a little bit of security there. Uh, and the driver waits outside and the, you know, the stripper brings the food uh, to your door and rings the bell and sort of leaves it, you know, maintains the social distance, right? So, you, you know, look but don't touch, right? Uh, six feet. Uh, and then they do a little dance. Uh, <laughs> so it's like Hooters. It's like Hooters delivery. Yeah, it's basically... Hooters delivery and it's like it's one of those things that's very it's very surreal but also funny and also just kind of you know it it makes light of the situation well also you know it sort of brings the strip club to you you know it's uh this was in portland you said yeah boober eats so look uh, i'm currently wearing a leopard print jacket so i have no choice but to give full support (laughs) (laughs) eats So anyway, yeah, I'm putting this forward just because, you know, I think uh, working people of all industries have to innovate, and it's just a great way to both make light of the situation while also providing your services as you want to. You know, strippers got to work too. Yeah, Yeah, I I guess whether or not I'd be willing to extend critical support to (laughs) Boober Eats uh, would depend entirely upon the... um, the working conditions of the various uh, workers delivering and producing the food. For example, are they getting hazard pay, et cetera, et cetera? Are they, yeah, are they being given like the proper 
uh, personal protective equipment, et cetera. <laughs> I was about to say, like, sexy personal protective equipment. Like, sexy. <laughs> what would that even look like? Deliberately revealing chainmail is like deliberately revealing PPE seems to defeat the purpose. <laughs> yeah, they just have a have an N95 mask over each boob. <laughs> I'll show you double D ninety fives, you know. <laughs> yeah. When, when when you first said that, what I uh, what I thought it was going to be was that um, the the person that brings the food to the door is just wearing like you know like gloves and a mask and a trench coat, and they just flash you and drop it. <laughs> so it's like you know. They are, they are they are protecting you know you you know it doesn't the virus doesn't travel that way so like yeah, yeah i think that'd be the way to do it yeah <laughs> you like linger and do a little dance and that's like more more time for like there to be like you know water droplets you know whatever mm-hmm. you just well, you're, you're maintaining social uh social distance yeah and it's not for very long you know i think the best research right now is uh or is you can only get it if you're asymptomatic, you can only pass it if you're in the same room as someone for like 10 minutes. So this isn't going to be like a 10 minute uh, lap dance from six feet away. You know, this isn't that. It's, <laughs> that's, it's, that's, yeah, because that's impossible. That's not really a lap dance at that point. That's, that's like watching someone twerk from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> but like from a weird distance, it's like not, not yeah. close enough to do anything, but way too close otherwise. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is this is going to be kind of an interesting one to take a vote on or to to discuss because I mean we haven't discussed like sex work at all. So like we're we're just all presuming that we like are in critical support of sex work on some level at least. Which I mean, I think this is just fun. Like that's that's an interesting thing that we all just presume. Well, I think I would be. Yeah, I guess I would have been surprised if anyone had real pushback among us it's you know in our discussions on this glorious show up to this point we've we've discussed like you know you can interpret the topic in either like the present tense or in some future socialist society like whichever one makes more sense and i think there are people who argue that like in a future socialist society sex work as we know it would look very different um it would be a bit you know, it would just be constructed differently. Like you wouldn't, um, you know, uh, you wouldn't obviously have all, like we're all exploited for our labor, but like there's a particular exploitation within sex work that is, has extra exploitation on there. And that would go away under socialism, which would then sort of pave the way for, you know, just like every other industry is transformed and some, you know, may become more or less professional so it would be the same for sex work. And so, you know, I think from that perspective, if you're looking at like a future socialist society, like does a future, future socialist society have widespread sex work? I don't know. Um, I think there's arguments that they, it wouldn't, uh, but also like, you know, how far does that go? You know, when, when does that happen? And, but, you know, in the present, you know, right now, I think people are able to survive under capitalism however they have to and however they see fit for themselves, um, you know, in, again, understanding the whole context around that. So, you know, people do what they can to survive, and I don't think we should 
harp on sex workers, especially in this sort of more like flippant, less, you know, there's much less danger to the sex worker in this instance um, because there's a, there's actually, you know, there's a driver making sure that, you know, that they're secure and okay. And also like the six feet foot social distance thing prevents any, anything from that ha- from happening there. It's so wait, but then are they just standing like, like, let's say you take it to someone's house, you walk up to the door drop it on the doorstep and then like step like off their porch. So you're just kind of like out in the middle of their yard, <laughs> like front yard, like doing a little dance for them. Is that yeah, like... kind of, yeah, I think that's my impression of what's going right, on well, here. Hey, I mean, to each their own, I guess if, if, if they're, if they're into it, I mean, I cannot tell them not to do that. I think that's great. Good for you. So, but the, the critical question would be, was an innovation of the workers themselves that they were like, this is a way that we can all still make a living. Oh, uh, right. Or are they being coerced into doing it by the or, owners? Like, they really should have just been sent home with full pay and benefits. You know, yeah. Yeah. weeks, you know, we'll reassess at that point, depending on, you know, how this, this crisis continues. Like, every other non-essential industry. Like, you'd be very hard-pressed to, like, argue that uh, a strip club is an essential business. (laughs) I I think... Even even restaurants remaining open kind of strikes me as weird. Like, does anyone really need takeout? I feel like you can just go to a grocery store and get food. Well, uh, one, I don't think the government wants to pay for every single restaurant in America going out of business. Well, they don't want Um, to. Right, but... Two, I think, I mean, there's a lot of people who really don't have adequate cooking facilities, even on people who can afford to eat out, you know, folks who just don't have, like, I think of all the people who live in, like, micro apartments where there's, like, a shared kitchen. And so, like, the entire building trying to use a shared kitchen during quarantine, probably not the best idea. They should go out to eat or get takeout. No one should live in micro apartments, but that's... Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about, yes, given the current situation... No, but I mean in general, like they should not like micro micro apartments should not be a thing. Like they are right, but I'm but but given that they do exist and people do live in them, (laughs) those people need to eat. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, and I think I think there can be are restaurants essential. I mean, I think there is a very good discourse and argument to be made about what is and isn't essential and how you know capitalism is unprepared to handle this crisis. But at the same time, like the individual judgment for what one one individual thinks is essential, which is all you're left with under capitalism. I mean, like that varies. Like if getting a meal delivered from one of your favorite places helps you be less anxious about the situation, I think that's, that's a valuable service. I mean, it all depends on how the, the workplaces are structured and if the, you know, are the workers being coerced into doing this or do they really want this to be a service? Like, Meals on Wheels, you know, for seniors who can't leave the home and can't cook for themselves, um, that's been a big uh, program uh, for, you know, uh, elderly people for a long time. And I think particularly in this instance when uh, they have trouble going to the grocery store in the first place um, to get uh, groceries. Um, And, yeah, you can do grocery delivery or or what have you. uh, But if you're already allowing grocery delivery, then as long as the kitchen is you know, kept clean and the working conditions are good and people are receiving hazard pay. Um, and you know, all of the things that we would want for an essential employee, 
then yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with a restaurant um, continuing uh, delivery operations, especially to to folks who, who really need it. And so, yeah, I think in principle, there's nothing wrong with that. And then if you allow delivery, then uh, and again, assuming it's uh, not coercive, and which is impossible under capitalism, but you know, assuming it's not especially coercive, then yeah, I, I think throwing on the uh, sort of sex work angle onto it is kind of a fun uh, addition. Okay, so two birds, one stone. Uber Eats for senior citizens. Ooh. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They need that more than anyone. <laughs> Going I feel through like the that's ageist. That's really ageist, man. <laughs> like, I, just think, like, I just think, in general, our, our, our senior citizens are going through a, a rough time in society. You know, the, the, this is the only time you'll ever hear me defend boomers. But when the governor of Texas goes on TV and says, I think boomers should die for the economy. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, I think it's, it's, it's the one time the, the old folks tell them creep, you know, deserves to, to look at boobs, you know, you know, if he wants, if, if he wants to pay for someone to come, you know, show him his, her boobs from six feet away, you know what? Good for you. You need this right now. Right. So yeah, if you're going to be sacrificed for on like the altar of the Dow industrial average, uh, yeah, least, right. the least they can do is provide you with some boobs. I mean, that's, <laughs> Oh, this is so fucked up. I love this conversation. <laughs> Teresa, do you have thoughts about Boober Eats? <laughs> uh, are you just laughing at the Are you stuck on the name? <laughs> the name is very good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. My answer is not very funny or fun because I still think I, I disagree pretty much. I think with Preston's um, uh, assessment, I, I think I don't think uh, restaurant workers are, are, are essential workers. Um, and I think the problems um, Preston identified are legitimate, but like people need to stay the fuck home as much as possible. And having an, an entire another category of worker out there is contrary to that. <laughs> so as much as... Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Mm. And, and to be honest, like most of the companies uh, that are sort of like requiring their workers, I mean, I was working in a, in a food service environment and I was forced to go in and do nothing and like was not given proper like personal protective equipment and they were going to have us making food for the elderly. Um, and that fortunately got canceled, but I don't know. I just don't, I think people should stay the fuck home as much as possible. Yeah. I, I, I think I basically agree. Well, I think the sleaze ball, um, in me wants to like Boober eats, but I guess, I guess logically I should probably say no critical support because yeah, it, the people shouldn't, the government should just make sure that strippers can stay home. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, responsibility of a strong, centrally administrated welfare state to make sure that strippers can stay. Yes, strippers yes. deserve to self quarantine too. They should not have to be giving you know booty dances in the middle of people's yards. <laughs> you know, all right, that's a very good point. You've convinced me. That makes sense. Uh, we can uh, people can be sexy delivery drivers on their own time uh, <laughs> if they so desire to do that. Um, but 
yeah, like, yeah, it's very difficult to have personal protective equipment from that job. This whole thing hasn't been around long enough for that fetish to really develop. So, yeah. Oh, but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Okay. So, so speaking of this, I was very hesitant uh, to use this as my topic, but I'm going to since we just talked Wait. about Boober Eats. Okay. So, we voted this, down Boober Eats, right? Yeah. So just yes. Okay. This one, speaking of, of fetishes related to coronavirus uh, and quarantining and all that stuff, my topic is the uh, exciting field of teledildonics, which, <laughs> which, which is, it's, it's very old. It's as old as the internet itself, but basically it's where two people have sex with each other through internet connected sex toys that are responsive to the movements of one person and transmit that to the other person via the internet. Okay. And so what? nowadays there's stuff, for, for example, you can buy, you can buy a dildo that connects to your phone and you can set it up remotely. So someone far away, you can give them the, the, the password or whatever to control your vibrator, uh, from their house, you know, cause they're quarantined. Teledildonics yeah. is a real word. Look it up. Yeah, I <laughs> it's it's real. Yeah, no, I've heard of right. I've, I've, so 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 the entry level into this is is the the like Wi-Fi connected vibrator. That's like the entry level, and you maybe like in the age of uh, coronavirus, you can meet someone, uh, you know, on Tinder and have a great conversation, and then you're like, okay, here's here's my uh, here's the key to, <laughs> to my you know, Wi-Fi dildo, and then you can have, you know, uh, internet sex with each other. Um, but the like advanced version is there's like, I'm pretty sure like in, in Nevada, there's like a, a virtual sex bot brothel that exists. Um, you could, I mean, you could incorporate all kinds of crazy shit with VR, with all kinds of insane contraptions, you know, and like life-size dolls and things like that. So you could have like, a life-size, like each person on each end has a life-size doll that's supposed to be like responsive based on the movements of the other person. So do we support this or is this a dangerous, dangerous development for humanity? Oh man. <laughs> so basically, okay. The reason I thought of this was because I saw an article that said like sex toy sales are up 60% or something like that. If only it was 69%. Um, yeah, right. And then, like with the coronavirus, and then uh, like a couple companies are sending people like free dildos, you know, basically as a promotional marketing thing. They're giving them out for free. I mean, delivery, right? Um, and so it made me think, like, oh, okay, so this is just the beginning, right? It just started, and this sex toy sales are already up. So I'm wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty like, I think that within you know, if this goes on past April, we're definitely going to see an app come about that's like Tinder. But when you sign up, they send you a like uh, Wi-Fi connected sex toy package, you know, depending like you, you choose, okay, this is, this is my gender and this is how I like to have sex. So then they send you the appropriate toy, which connects, you know, to your phone. And then you go on your little, uh, you know, virtual, you know, video call date with someone. And then if it goes well, <laughs> you can have virtual sex with them. And I think there's going to be an app that does this within 
within a month, if this, if the quarantine goes past April, then this will be a thing and people will start doing it. And is this, is encouraging this a good way to get people to stay home? <laughs> that, I think to me, that's the fundamental question. I mean, there's a couple different angles you could come up with and would it also goes a couple two? different angles. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of angles I can think of. <laughs> I mean, another way, like I, I, I read an article about what, um, what this is doing to dating and relationships. Right. In general, and it was super interesting. There's been like a massive wave of divorces in China. Yeah. So it's like all these people that are cooped up are either like having a lot of sex and it's going to produce like, there's going to be some sort of like a, like a, um, baby boom. Yeah. There's going to be a baby boom in about nine months. Um, but for another group of people, they're like cooped up with their partner finding out that their relationship doesn't work, um, <laughs> or that it only worked when one of them wasn't there most of the time. So it's like with this, so yeah, but it's like, on the other hand, I, I think, I, I don't know. I don't so, think okay. Maybe, maybe a more philosophical question is the widespread proliferation of like virtual reality sex. Is that, is that bad for society? And if it becomes normal, will people be able to go back? Will people want to go back? I think people will be very able to go back to having real You think sex. so? Okay. <laughs> I don't think yeah, that would be the problem. This is a Black Mirror game, okay? Like, okay, well, maybe it could be. If we were talking about like, like a fully like virtual reality, like Black Mirror, like plug in a thing to your neck and then go and like have like a dream where you have sex, was it like, that might be a different case. But right. we're talking about, like, basically elaborate phone sex. <laughs> yeah, phone sex, and you also have a dildo. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, you know, it's like, how different is that really than just having phone sex? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is it is a good way to encourage people to stay home. You know, it's a good, it's, it's a, it's a good temporary substitute. You can get a few of the people to, to stay home. I just feel like it's unnecessary, unnecessarily technological. Like, like Jacob <laughs> said, you could definitely just do this with, you know, like a flashlight and a dildo, right? Like, there's no, like, you can get yeah. like eighty-five percent of the way there without needing to <laughs> send your. Can you just imagine the, through an app? Yeah, the big of the flying, data that these companies could collect. Yeah, the, the bits flying through the internet are literally your dick. It's literally your dick on the internet. It's like, it's, you've accomplished the wireless dick effect, you know? Like, okay, but I kind of like the idea of having, like, uh, some kind of digital, so, some kind of, like, fleshlight internally shape itself to be, like, my butthole. I personally think that'd be super awesome to have that. Um, I think that's the technology that currently exists. Yeah, I don't know if it does that in real life, but I, mean, I think it would be cool. You can always get a mold of your butt. How on earth would it do that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay. Think of like, think of like the when like at the at the drugstore they have that machine you stick your arm into to get your blood pressure. So in that reverse, like, that in reverse. So so, but it, maybe it can like squeeze into like a specific shape. So, I mean, that sounds like some. In order that, for that to actually work, that would have to be some pretty advanced technology that would not be yeah. cheap. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, Gabe, true. but 
I don't think I want to stick my dick in that when I go to the, to the pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, okay, good point. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, some of us, some of us have kinks, Preston. I don't really don't appreciate your kink shaming right now. <laughs> oh my gosh, Teresa, do you have feelings about this? I don't know. I kind of just want to give my critical support <laughs> um, just to sort of counterbalance my, uh, like, the pressure I was putting on uh, the <laughs> boober eats one. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't think this is as – I don't think this has the negative connotations that boober eats have of, like, an exploitative strip club owner forcing employees to come into work and people having to go door-to-door – you know, doing delivery when they should be staying home. I, I don't know that this has the same, I mean, I guess yeah. it is, you would have to mail someone like a company would have to mail someone a sex toy. And worse, you would have to manufacture those sex toys. You'd have to have a factory that you somehow designate as, as an right. essential industry. Okay. <laughs> but it, <laughs> let me, let me, let me counter with this by saying, I think it's good that, pot shops and liquor stores are considered essential industries uh, because people would not stay home if they could not be drinking. Like people would be just fucking pissed off. I, there would be riots in the streets. If the liquor stores, if people could not get booze. And so I think in the same respect, sex is also an essential industry. And so it's, it's not like, like sex workers should not have to be going and people shouldn't be going out on dates right now. So I think Sex toys is the, 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 the best substitute that exists to get people to stay home. But it's like if we're talking about a group of people who were, were, are so desperate to get uh, action that they were going to yeah, go on, and they, they, they were going to go on an actual date with a person that they were going to get within six feet of, but that the prospect of teledildonics convinces them that they don't have to do that, that's a very small group of people. Like that is, a, well, I that think, is, you know, I think it, it encourages people to stay home. I don't like, and I also think we have never lived through a time when we were forced to stay home for multiple months. Okay. Like we're all, we're, people are already losing their minds. Imagine if this goes on into May or June, this situation, and it could, it very well could. It's, it's, a, that's, we're talking about a whole different world at that point. And people are going to be so excited to have something like this. Like, I think I think it'll be it'll be very it'll be a good thing to help keep the quarantine going if it, that's what needs to happen. I mean, part of me just wants to just again it goes back to the this seems like an unnecessary number of moving parts uh, <laughs> for to achieve the effect that you want. That's like the most like male-brained. I, I don't know. It's just like I feel like uh, many men, particularly straight men, are are like. Yes, sex is very simple. You just have to like, you know, rub the dick for a few minutes and then that's it. So I I think for many people, there's more moving parts. It's more complicated. Yeah. Okay. There's but like you can do tele foreplay without doing teledildonics. Okay. That's that's very different. All right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I don't know. To me, it just seems like you can already get like 90% of the result. Uh, All right. Let's think of the situation. If you already have a partner then you can just quarantine with them that's fine right if you I mean, don't already 
Not necessarily. Not necessarily, but you can choose. two people who are not quarantined together right now. This is true. (laughs) One could choose to do that. Uh, Well, hmm. No. Okay, there's an option for some people, and sometimes partners live together. So For partners who live together, For a percentage of people, right, having real sex is an option. Well, yeah, for, and for that percentage of people, they are either uh, conceiving a child or getting divorced, and that's, that's those transgressions. So, <laughs> There's no third option. There's no... Right. I mean... Tell yeah. a dildomics. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just like, it, it just seems like far too much technology for something. Well, but it, it's conceivable situation. More situations like this could arise... I think you need to think about this quarantine going on for multiple months and the psychological effect that that'll have on people. Well, see, but like in my life, it's already like I don't have teledildonics anyway. And so <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like it's going to get parents, better. Are your parents still living with you? Uh, yeah, well, they're in the next room. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But another factor why it wouldn't really help me. You can't hide that. Can you imagine just the the sound that thing makes? It's the sound. (laughs) It's the blood pressure cuff sound. (laughs) 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 I don't know. You could just put on some kind of wholesome movie or something in the background (laughs) covered up. Right. Or turn on one of your many vacuums. Yeah, I do have a lot of vacuums. They probably wondered why I was vacuuming for like 30 minutes. Not to mention teleforp. Like, it's really difficult when there's 40 vacuums going. <laughs> I mean, conversely, you could just get one of those blood pressure things. <laughs> I'm just imagining... It can't be that expensive. Wrapping the cuff. <laughs> What's my blood pressure right now? <laughs> well, it depends. What am I watching at this moment? <laughs> oh my God. Like, that's got to be one of the dumb, like, it's going to be one of the Darwin Award things that comes out. Um, you know, <laughs> it's like, hey, we couldn't treat this guy, mostly because we were overloaded with uh, corona patients, but. Also, he tried to put a blood pressure cuff on his dick. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, it's my pressure right now. It's going to be so high. Pump in. That's an interesting question. If, if you put your dick in a blood pressure, would it be higher than your normal blood pressure? Yeah. This is the most galaxy-level, galaxy-brain conversation I think we've ever had on this show. <laughs> We're just inspired by that weird background you have, Gabe. Yeah, it's the galaxy. I'm not changing. I think, Jacob, it would depend on how long you maintained. Could you maintain through the entire blood checking, uh, pressure checking process? My question is, would it give you an accurate reading? (laughs) Yeah. No, you would probably have to get a children's one. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> the diameter from a children's arm is closer. I mean, speak for yourself, Preston. <laughs> <laughs>
balls. Or like, uh. Anyway, on that note. <laughs> what, what are we even... So I think, I think it's time for a vote. I'm going to call for a vote on this subject. Do we offer our critical support uh, to, the, to, the, to the brave new world of teledildonics? And I, I say do. yes. I agree. I say I'm going yes. to vote no. I think... I think most pandemics won't last as long as this one. Although I guess if there's ever like Ebola, I guess that that could be an issue. <laughs> I, can I just be like I don't care? Like I, I don't know. Like, nope. Honestly, that's not an option. Way. Like the world is black and white. You have to make a decision. Fine, I support it because I can't find a good reason to oppose it. It could be useful. <laughs> it's just that I don't see the point right now. <laughs> Okay, so I kind of think that the specific concept around teledildonics is pretty moronic and unnecessary. Um, <laughs> it really adds much of anything. It sounds gimmicky and not like it's the kind of thing that people who uh, are single and quarantined and like the kind of person who's not actually out of work because they're just working from home, so the whole thing's kind of a joke. It's the kind of thing they would spend money on <laughs> try once and then never do again. Because I, I, I just, I, 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 which is like actually probably the majority of the sex toy industry. But um, I guess I, I, so this specific thing is I wouldn't support. I, I, I kind of think I am going to say critical support just in the sense of like critical support for the, the, the idea of like making remote sexual activity more like like you're absolutely right about the app someone is already someone started some out of work app developer started making this two weeks ago like <laughs> it, is, it is already in development i guess they're in san francisco they're definitely in san francisco yeah well as, I mean, san francisco as soon as they got the us, right yeah they got yeah, the like, shelter in place order and because they're in fucking San Francisco, they decided to make this happen. Yeah, so I would say, sure, kind of on the strength of the spirit of the thing, like it's 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 worth it's a worthwhile cause, even if this specific iteration is not. <laughs> All right, well, look so at that. I think it's unanimous. Dear listener, go, go forth and uh, tell a dildonic yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a group. It's a multi. It's a group activity. You got to get someone else involved. <laughs> I mean, you could just do it yourself, <laughs> depending on how the technology works. Oh, um, magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. A million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. So, Teresa, do you have a topic for us? Okay, so I kind of had a few... Always. <laughs> I feel like that's just Teresa's uh, thing. It's just like, I had a few, but I'm not the most sure whatever's, whatever's the most quarantine COVID-19 related. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, it's... Okay, I'm not going to, like, explain all the reasons why... Um, might not be good this time but the impulse is very strong to do that okay so 
the uh, stimulus uh, package that was just passed. Oh, oh shit. So, dear listeners, this is the stimulus package that was passed by the House of Representatives on uh, Friday, March 27th. And as of this moment, it has technically not been signed by Trump, so it is not done yet. But it's I thought he signed it stimulus. earlier. Oh, it's been signed? I, I, I huh? It was passed by the House this morning. And the last I checked, it was not signed. I heard, I mean, I, I, this might have been wrong, but I, I heard something about it, about him signing it, but maybe I'm wrong. So this, just, just to be clear, this is not to be confused with the stimulus package that you could buy from Teledonides. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is 200% what they are calling their, their brand. Oh, definitely, yeah. Stimulus package. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what you buy at like the gas station and it's like pills with a picture of a rhino on it. <laughs> <laughs> the stimulus package. Yeah. And then and then you go from there to, you know, both because of your massive erection and because you're crazy that you you go to the uh to the pharmacy and you stick it in the in the blood pressure cup. <laughs> in the blood pressure cup. <laughs> Sorry. Uh just to be uh yeah. He he did sign it. No. At, oh, he did. Like okay. seven hours ago or something. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is this is actually really hard. I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the first oh, user wow. of stimulus package. It's like oh, oh man. <laughs> Such a great testimonial. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, actually hard. really hard. <laughs> oh man okay um yeah so the stimulus package um it includes a shit ton of corporate bailouts and useless bullshit and the majority of the worker relief aspects of it are extremely weak but not irrelevant like the expanding unemployment insurance is that will help millions of people the a uh, $1,200 check, depending on how you file taxes two years ago, is kind of a joke. But, I mean, for the people to get it, that'll be meaningful. So, yeah, it, it's like, okay, and, and this is this is actually really relevant because um, Bernie and AOC and everyone else fucking voted for this. And they voted for it saying, I don't like substantial aspects of it, but I'm going to vote for it anyway. They offered their critical support to this bill. Should yeah. Was that correct? I mean, I think in the context too, like they were able to, I mean, Bernie in particular was able to win, was able to win like the good stuff that's in the bill. Well, he you was know? able to defend the good stuff. Defend, okay, right. Well, yeah. like, what is, didn't he get the 600? That, that, that one part. Right, so he was able to win that. And I mean, I guess like in the shitty context of the world we live in, right, it's like you see the government is run by Republicans and they're the ones, they're the ones overseeing the coronavirus, you know, relief and quarantine process. And so their argument, right, would be like the only way, Bernie's argument would be like the only way to get anything for workers. And they did get some meaningful stuff is by compromising with them because they run the government right now. And I guess it's just like, I don't know if this moment is the era of mass movements. Because of coronavirus? 
Yeah. I mean, I just don't know that like, with, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that there was any way to get anything better at the speed that it happened. Okay. Well, the Democrats controlled the, uh, the house though. So if, if they had wanted something better, they could have gotten it because this could not have passed without majority support from Democrats. Yeah. The, the, the kind of critique, um, I've heard of, uh, a range of sort of takes on this from the left and the sort of strongest take, the strongest anti-take I heard on democracy now. And the guy was, he was like kind of infuriated with Bernie at all for, uh, cause oh. his, his impression was that they actually had all the, they had enough leverage to have shaped the bill and been more forceful about keeping the, the bad stuff, corporate slush fund aspect out of it. I, I don't really know the degree to which he's correct. Uh, I don't really have, I don't know enough about it, uh, and what the sort of, how the process works and what kind of influence he and like AOC and, and et cetera might've actually had, but, but yeah, I, I agree with Jacob, like the stuff that is, uh, helpful to, on. Uh, like the working class and normal ass people, um, is, is significant. Like it is materially going to improve a lot of people's lives, including mine. And yeah, but then it comes with all this, all this shit, this shit, uh, that is really bad too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I, I think, think like, like you just real quick, uh, do you remember who it was on democracy now who was saying that? I do not remember his name, but I can look it up, uh, and get back to you in a minute. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the website now. I'm just curious. It, he was a speaker later on in the show, but yeah, I don't know. Was this I don't today? know. Yeah. This was today. Okay. Yeah. It, it, yeah. The, the $1,200 checks thing is like, we're not checks, I guess the payments thing is definitely the, probably like one of the worst aspects because it's one, not really that much money at all. And two, it's going to be so complicated. I mean, I just, I think that I would be surprised if half the people who are eligible got it by the end of April. I, I would be shocked if they were able to even do that good. No, I mean, not that I think millionaires should be getting it too, but I just don't really care at this moment. If millionaires also get a check, like it just seems like having to check and verify everyone's income adds a bunch of extra steps and basing it off of people's like previous tax returns. It's really complicated. This is fuck over people who make a different amount of money than they made two years ago. That yeah. aspect has, well, that, ac- that aspect has been changed. So it's improved since the last time the actual bill is better than the bill as of yesterday. So I think that aspect has been significantly, it's much more inclusive now than it was before. And you don't, it's for people who didn't file taxes. I was speaking with the, uh, CPA when I was doing my taxes earlier. And she said that for people who didn't file taxes, um, uh, it's going to be through social security, for example, like if you, your income is from social security, then social security, you'll get a direct deposit, like just like you would your normal, like disbursement, monthly disbursement from them. Okay. I mean, it kind of gets to like Matt Stoller, which is interesting. Wait, who was it? Matt Stoller. Who is he? Um, he's a pundit. He was also on the rising. I, I heard him this morning too. Yeah. And he had a, he had a, he had a pretty harsh take on it. I, I, I would agree with your assessment that it was like, 
They definitely could have fought for something more. And the main criticism coming from that crowd is that this was, they allowed the relief package for working people to be combined with the bailout. And if those were separate bills, they could have fought it differently. But, um, you know, Chuck Schumer, Pelosi, Mitch McConnell were all sort of convinced they needed to combine all these things to wrangle basically the radicals of both of their parties. At least that, that's the line from the rising. I personally don't think that the, like, the populists in the Republican Party are, would be willing to put up a fight for, you know, anything. that They don't actually oppose the corporate bailout. It's just posturing for them. So it's whatever. But, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think in terms of, like, legislative procedure, yeah, I mean... I think sometimes the critique comes across as like, oh, the Democrats are being hoodwinked again. And it's like, that's definitely not the case. We all know that the corporate Democrats are very happy to be, you know, plugging this bailout. I'm sure the, all the Washington state Democrats are happy. Boeing's about to get, you know, billions of dollars of bailout money. They were the ones pushing for means testing. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not like we should act as if the Democrats are some sort of like, you know, good-hearted idiots you know i think the reality of the, of the matter is the the group of people in the on the floor of the house and the senate who both really wanted the worker bailout part and really hated the corporate bailout part like truly that number is very small you know in terms of like senators and representatives willing to fight on that basis could they have done more? Yeah. Could they have done more and not taken a ridiculous political hit for doing so? I'm not sure. Like, could Bernie have introduced his amendment on uh, you know, addressing the corporate bailout even if the Republican amendment had not come up? Yeah, he could have. Uh, but he would have been absolutely destroyed by the press, by you know every other force um, for doing that. He still should have, but... If you're doing what? Uh, for introducing his amendment to it. Uh, he was threatening to, uh, while he was mocking the Republicans uh, for trying to cut benefits for low-wage workers, he said, okay, if that passes, I'm going to introduce my own amendment to cut the corporate welfare uh, section of this bill. And do you think Are, he would have been attacked in the press for that? Uh, no, I think if, if he had introduced that amendment and intended to block the bill just entirely... Right. Uh, over that, uh, without the Republicans, like, let's say the amendment had not passed, but he decided to do that anyway, then I think he would have been absolutely destroyed politically. Uh, he would have been seen as basically being an obstructionist. It would basically, like, confirm all the things that they say about Bernie, right? It, it would be totally stupid and unprincipled, obviously. And, you know, uh, but that's just what the media spin would be, right? Is that, oh, it's Bernie, he's not getting his way. Look at all these businesses that employ all these people, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, it just would have been very hard for him to, to carry out that filibuster on his own. And because there's just, remember, there's just not that many people on the floors of the House and the Senate who actually want this. It's not like there's a bunch of kind-hearted idiots. It's like, no, there's just very genuinely very few of them. You know, if there were more of them, the bill wouldn't look like this. And so, yeah, yeah. could they have done more? Yeah. Should they have done more? Probably. Could they have done more and not been absolutely destroyed by the media and everybody else? Unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it just has the, it has the whole weight of the emergency underneath it, right? Where everyone is saying, do something now, do something now, do something now, do something now. And it's, it, it makes the whole situation a lot more complicated than, you know, a normal parliamentary procedure 
situation. Right. But okay, so if if the entire Senate, the majority of Republicans, majority of the Democrats are going to vote for something, and Bernie Sanders isn't going to vote for it, that's not going to hold up at passing. Like he, I, 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 I don't think he had the ability to stop this. The filibuster. It seemed like he may have had the ability to do so at the in the current stage of whatever they were doing, whatever process. He could have held it up in some further way. Basically, yeah. That's what he was threatening to do because of the Republicans' uh, amendment. And he said he basically right. would have done that if the Republicans had won that amendment, which they didn't. But one could argue he should have done that anyway, yeah. regardless. And, and the I, question I, is, I, is, does that make I sense? I agree with that argument. Like, I, well, I, okay, so if, if we had a real socialist representative in the Senate right now, they should have done that. They should have argued for it. And it's like Bernie Sanders... The fact that he didn't is kind of, like, kind of, of course he didn't. That's not who he is. And it's like, if you look at, this actually came up in that last debate when Biden, when, when you know, Bernie says something like, I didn't vote for the last bailout thing. Like, you're, you, you handed all this money to these corporations. And, they, and, and then Biden came back and was like, no, we had to bail out these banks in order to save the economy, save, you know, the livelihoods of millions of people. And Bernie didn't have an answer for that, which was kind of, Bad. Like it was, it was, it was, it was, it was one of the key points where he failed in the last debate, where he didn't say, "No, we needed to bail out working people, not big corporations." That's what we needed to do. Your bailout did not save people. You, you could have, you know, bailed out the mortgages of uh, working people all over this country, and instead, you handed all this money to, uh, to the big banks to do whatever they wanted with. He didn't make that argument. And he's not prepared. And so it's, it's, it's like this, this would have been another case where he could have taken a principled stand and then failed to defend it later. And then, you know, I mean, yeah, he would have been dragged in the liberal media if, if, if he had done really anything substantial to hold up this bill. But I don't know. I think that that would have been the more principled thing to do. Yeah, it kind of comes down to do you critically support people's or when, when someone you critically support critically supports something? Do you critically support that also? Like, is critical support transitive? Like, is this like the like the um, the Inception version of critical support, where it's like critical support, <laughs> with critical support? Well, I don't. I don't think. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think it's as simple as that. I mean, I don't think any of us should make the argument that oh, well, because Bernie supports it, then then we do too. Like, I think we should all dig into it a little bit more than that, right? But but I think that, you know, him supporting it certainly gives it weight and makes me, you know, consider and want to look into it, right? But it's not transitive like that, no. I think, you know, whenever you look at do you, do you lend critical support to something, right, is uh, especially in the legislative process, and again, where very often uh, forces are in the minority, right? Uh, and the question is, like, does the bill advance working people more than just advancing like the material benefits for working people, but like, does it benefit the struggle of working people, right? Like do working people see this as a victory that they won through their mm. organizing or that like, does it advance the movement? And if, you know, there had been, you know, a lot of a, a movement to fight for these checks, to fight for these things. Uh, and also this bailout was attached because politically that's what had to be done then it would suck, but you might critically support that. But, I mean, when you look at it, like, 
the idea for a quote UBI, like an emergency UBI, this is crisis Keynesianism. This is the ruling class trying to save itself. The fact that working people are also crying out for it is sort of coincidental uh, to what they're trying to do, right? And it's not seen as, this is not a concession from the ruling class. This is more like they really need this too. Like they understand that like Fed money isn't working anymore. Like it's more than just financial shell game stuff at this point. It's like people just can't buy things right now. And so kind of from that perspective, like, well, did working people fight to win this? Well, yeah, Bernie fought to win the unemployment insurance part. And the Democrats kind of like held up the process a little bit to try and get a little bit more of a thing than, you know, like some marginal things at the at sort of the edges. But um, I think it would be difficult to say that like public pressure or that public, you know, working people becoming organized won this bill. And so from that yeah, perspective, it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't critically support it because it's also, it's not seen as a victory and it came with these huge losses. I think it, if, if there had been a very serious, like if, if they actually attached this corporate bailout to a very substantial, uh, serious worker relief program, in, you know, involving uh, expanding unemployment insurance, uh, like some sort of consistent actual UBI, like several thousand dollars every month for every person and no means to, if they had actually done that, I think we'd be in a different situation. But I mean, what they did is like, yes, it will be meaningful for many people in the same way that Obamacare was meaningful for many people. Um, but ultimately this is a corporate bailout package. Um, this is them trying and honestly, probably kind of failing to, uh, save the economy from a recession. I mean, they're, they're handing, it's like, they're, they're doing shit. Like, um, they're going to hand Boeing a sum of money. That's like 90% of their net worth without taking control of the company. Like they're going to nationalize Boeing without nationalizing Boeing, which is just, and, and, and the CEO of Boeing said, if you try to do anything else, if you try to put anyone on our board, mandate anything, we don't want your money. And it's like, that means you don't need this money. Yeah, there's like a bunch of language in the bill that's like only if other funds are not accessible or only if blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but like it's it's language is language, right? It's all about how that's enforced. You know, that oversight board has basically no power. Steve Mnuchin has insane amounts of power now. I mean, he's basically like a second central banker at this point. I, I think I'm with Jacob. Like if, if this had been attached to like Rashida Tlaib's proposal, of how to fund a UBI and, and just shovel $2 trillion out the door, $2,000 a month for every, every, not just every person who filed taxes, but like everybody, every adult, every, cause it was going to be issued through debit cards, uh, which is different than, you know, uh, a check to a banking account that you may or may not have depending on your immigration status or, or things like that. Um, so if it had been something more like that, where the relief was more widespread, more consistent, stronger, um, or, or something like that, then yeah, I think you, there would be a stronger case, but I think just uh, given that, like, it's a relatively small part of the bill compared to all the other corporate bailout measures, I think it, it is difficult to sort of gussy that up. Um, okay. I have a, I have a different take. Here's my take. I, I, I would be in favor of extending critical support to this bill, like granted everything, Jacob and Preston, you were you were saying it's. I I don't disagree in in principle with that really. Um, but I I 
I don't know. I think the actual material benefits that a large portion of like the working working class are going to get they, they, this does provide material relief for a lot of people in a time where like people are absolutely desperate for that and the level of the small <laughs> like totally inadequate um support that this does provide is better than what they could expect last week or even a few days ago. And that, uh, I think we should, you know, this is this, to the extent that this is helping relieve where like ordinary working class people, um, that's good for movement building right now. That's, that is mm, right. It's good for the working class so they can survive better than they could. Uh, with this not passing, but it's also good for movement building and people are going to, people don't have to be desperately scrambling quite as hard. They're still going to be doing the same things that they, there's still going to be the mutual aid projects uh, happening, um, but people will be a little bit less stressed than they would be without it. And, you know, this is not the the last piece of legislation legislation that will ever happen. You know, <laughs> like we can fight for better legislation down the line and fight to build the movement. And I think on the basis of just relieving people a little bit, yeah, I am willing to, to extend critical support for it. I know that it's going to substantially be, I mean, a lot of people and, and myself included, I am less stressed uh, because mm. of what this bill is, uh, is offering. So all the caveats that you guys mentioned, I think um, apply, but yeah. I think it's still really important that uh, any victories that are, uh, and, you know, you could tie this, you know, in terms of politically, you know, putting it forward and, and mobilizing around it uh, is like, yeah, you know, we started seeing people, this was the week of wildcat strikes. Like people just started walking off the job because they weren't getting enough protection. They weren't getting, uh, they weren't getting paid enough for this shit, you know, like uh, basically. And so, you could try to tie, you know, if you want to politically of like, yeah, that this was necessary for the capitalist class to maintain legitimacy. And if they didn't do this, then there would be more move uh, or, uh, you know, because there were movements already percolating, they had to concede this. Right. But I don't feel like that's nearly as strong as like, Hey, we mobilized the movement to win this thing. Um, and, you know, obviously it's much harder to do at the national level, with the same sort of force, uh, we haven't really seen. I, I struggle to think, you know, after the civil rights movement and like, you know, sort of one-off like gun bills or things like that. You know, when was the last time there was a mass movement of working American people who got a bill passed? Yeah, but, but Preston, I think we also need to think of in the context of an emergency and just how recently, like, the lockdown and quarantining has started. Like, I don't think that a movement winning a national bill is even possible is even remotely possible on the time scale that we're talking about. Like this event has not happened for a hundred years and it was like so different last time. I mean, it's just not really like comparable. And so, I mean, in that it's hard to judge it on that, on that criteria because I just don't, I just don't know that winning real, like, like, I don't know that, that a, a movement winning, massive gains is possible because people 
just just struggling to even know like what even is a movement right now. Yeah, we still haven't even figured that out. I mean, it's still it's so it's so sparse. It's everything is so in emergency mode that it's just like we need to look at this on a different criteria and look at it and play in the role that will perhaps I, I kind of like what Teresa said because it's like allowing people to then build that movement, you know, in the quarantine, build that movement from staying home because like, you know, without this unemployment, like think of how many people would be like, well, shit, I guess I'm just going to have to, you know, go work at, go work for DoorDash or go, go, uh, go to PCC and start working there. But now it's like, Oh, okay. Well maybe I can, you know, feel comfortable enough to join the mutual aid group, feel comfortable enough to come to one of these online town halls because I'm like not freaking out about how I'm going to eat tomorrow. You know, there's value, there's value in that. Like right now, the idea of winning a national bill isn't really possible for a mass movement at this moment. Yeah. And it's like, we can, we can say, okay, are we, are we analyzing something? Yes. Ideally these, these conditions, these would be the conditions uh, under which this was passed and it would be so much better. But I just feel like we have to deal with reality and, and not like it, it just, it just doesn't seem like a, a fair way to analyze something to say, Oh, well, it's not, as, it's not as good as it could have been. Therefore I'm not going to give it, you know, like it doesn't deserve cri- critical support. It just seems a little bit like too purist and, and, and not yeah tied to like, objective and subjective conditions but i think you can acknowledge that something is good without saying that you like well i don't know i guess it depends on how we want to define you know what what does critical support intend entail i mean obviously on this show we have a a larger definition of what i mean we we just critically support intelligentonics i don't think we can (laughs) have a very high moral ground on what critical support means but i think for something as like you know actually well i was was gonna say actually hard but like as difficult (laughs) as uh you know like a real piece of political legislation that has you know real material impacts on people and how it is won you know like uh how you know how it is won matters yeah i was arguing earlier that like you know there are very few people on the floors of of the house of are on the floors of the house and the senate who actually want these things but the question is like you know you can put pressure is like do you critically support a piece of legislature just because it legislation just because it does something good or do you critically support it because there was some way in which working people were involved and uh i don't know i think it's very difficult to de- make that determination with this bill with a high level of confidence i mean i think they were involved through through bernie and through other people i mean not yeah in the way that we would like but i think they were they were involved in that sense and i think you know the movement that has existed for bernie allowed him to win some of the things in it and give him the standing to win some of the things in it that he did. And frankly, I mean, I think the movement for Bernie convinced, you know, political class in general that they had to like throw in the bones that are in there. You know, I, I think, I think that had a lot to do with it, although not, not, not directly related to this bill. And I'll just say again, I just don't think, I think right now it's still, we're, st- we're still trying to figure out what even, what does a mass movement look like when everyone is, in quarantine how do we fight for stuff when people aren't even supposed to leave their house 
and it's it's too soon to like i don't think we can judge i don't think we can really judge it on that standard as much as we could with any other piece of legislation you know that's out there and exactly. i think to I, a degree sorry go yeah ahead. what no i'm 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 rambling here no, it, exactly. And with the time scale, with how quickly this is developing and things are changing, that movements take time to build. And so what we had to operate with the existing movement that was basically around Bernie. And like, it's just too, and that wasn't, you know, big enough for, uh, to accomplish what you're, what you're saying. And it's like, things were moving too fast too fast for that movement that you're saying would be necessary to actually uh, coalesce. You know, this is the, the time scale is just too quick for that to have really emerged. Uh, and like, I agree with, with Gabe that people were actually, you know, putting pressure on uh, government officials in various capacities. A lot of that was, you know, like in, in Washington, a lot of it was directed more at the state or citywide level um, and I, I would imagine that was happening all over the country as well. But yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, so the counter argument is Bernie and AOC and the rest of them in their current position right now, given the power that they, the, you know, admittedly limited power that they have and the state of, you know, our inability to really organize could have done much more. They could have demanded more. They could have proposed more. They could have fought for more. They could have, you know, Bernie... Even well, they did propose more. I mean, they certainly... Yeah, but it's like... Proposed okay, so a lot Bernie more. was up there making that speech, saying, like, this is, uh, you know, a, when he was berating the Republicans for trying to take out that one measure, he kept saying, I'm going to vote for this bill, I'm going to do this. He could be threatening to not vote for the bill. He could be, he could be doing everything he can to fight for, for no corporate bailouts and for a much stronger... And, and for much stronger relief measures. Yeah, like politically, could you? he could have gone up and argued, all right, I want to rewrite this bill, that line that says $500 billion of ba- to bailouts, uh, I want that to be $500 billion more to unemployment insurance or, or $500 billion more to the instant payouts. And I, I'm very aware that it is basically impossible that that would ever pass. No, yeah, but that's um, not the point. Right, like, like... He could have made that stand and yes, it would not have passed. It could have passed with his single no vote. And I think that would have been a more principled thing for him to do. I think that would have been the correct thing for him to do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was said earlier, he would have been skewered in the media. Yeah, he would. And a better, a stronger uh, representative of working class people would have been able to defend themselves from that. And I'm not sure Bernie could have had it, but he defended himself from that. But I think that's also kind of the argument that, like, Teresa and Gabe are coming at this with is, like, Bernie, like, you know, yeah, his politics are not that, but he also doesn't have the structure around him to do that. So, Guys, I was, like, getting really mad because I was talking and, uh, and oh, sorry. like, I thought people were, I thought, Jacob, you were talking, interrupting and talking over me, and then I thought Preston <laughs> was doing that, and I was yelling in the, into the phone. Phone and then I realized I had muted myself. So. Oh no! <laughs> Brutal self own. Yeah. Um, can we see the floor then? Yeah. Can I? Uh, sorry. Yeah, so, go for so it. now it's me interrupting. Um, but what I was going to say to Jacob at uh, this point is, I I think we're we're yes, that is what that is what some uh, highly principled. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, Marxists that I can think of would have done, but we don't have a real socialist. You know, we have social Democrats. Uh, Bernie and the um, the squad, they're, they're so social Democrats and they do not uh, live up to the standards that we have, that we would want them to have. But I don't, yeah, I still don't think, I, I, I still don't really think that's fair. Like we're just expecting. Because, just because we know, or we, we, we don't honestly think that they'll do that doesn't mean we shouldn't call on them to do that and insist that they do that. No, we absolutely should, but I don't think that that changes the calculation of, well, for me, it doesn't change the calculation of whether or not I want to extend my critical support to it. Um, maybe it, it sounds like it's not the case um, for uh, Preston and Jacob, but I think we've probably exhausted this topic unless anyone wants to add more. I mean, it, it comes back to like, is critical support like a, a uh, results oriented thing or a process oriented thing, right? Like, you know, I critically support Bernie because, uh, you know, his policies are good, but also more because his, you know, the program, he, you know, he's building, you know, the shadows of the movement that is necessary to win these changes. Uh, is it the way I would do it? No. Is it the way a lot of people I know would do it? No. But um, in general, he's got a much larger platform than I ever will. And so it's it's important to critically support and try to steer sections of that movement towards stronger politics. But, like, I don't know. It, it comes down to, like, but it's also a good point that, like, the process in this case is so fast and by necessity fast that it doesn't even make sense to critique it on the basis of process. Yeah. I, it's critique it on, on the basis of he should have done X, Y, and Z. He could have done these things. He did not do these things. And, like, we can critically support Bernie and critique him on this point and say he, he should have gone – he she should have gone a lot farther. He should have gone – should have put up – far more of a fight in general. He should be much more confrontational with democratic leadership. This is sort of an ongoing critique of him in all, in everything he does. That's my basic critique. Right. But yeah, I agree with the rest. Sorry to add in another thing there. And I don't know how necessary that was, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I'm down to vote. Vote, 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 vote. Okay. Well, uh, I think, yeah, my, my overall position hasn't really changed. I, I, all the caveats, but um, I do think it's generally. Um, mm, mm, oh, I don't want to walk that back. Sorry. Yes, I would be willing to extend my critical support, uh, despite all the many, many imperfections of this bill. Same. Uh, I'll vote no in the interest of uh, uh, having a balanced perspective on this topic, and also because I. I think we, especially now in this moment, it does well, it does more for the movement to begin critiquing Bernie's weaknesses as well as embracing his uh, stances. So I'm going to vote now. Yeah, I would say the issues with this bill are far beyond imperfections. I, I would say no critical support for it. All right. So, dun, dun. so we'll have to, uh, we'll have to, when we, when we do the tiebreaker on this one, we'll have some real uh, perspective on it too. Yeah. yeah, like so, if the unemployment insurance is a total cluster. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. Half of this podcast is, has successfully applied for unemployment insurance. So. 
I have unsuccessfully applied, so oh, still so? waiting. Oh, you're well, just... I applied and it's pending, and so I'm just waiting Wait, for them so to make a decision. You, did you do it online or? I did it them? online. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I did filled it out yesterday in the afternoon, and I had a decision like by this morning, and I, it was approved well, it this was morning. The, I think it's weird because it seems like they gave me a decision, but you know, you have to file weekly claims. So I filed my first weekly claim and then they're like, okay, this one's pending. And I think it's because I was working, I I was working half like part-time at a job that I got laid off from and I'm still working part-time at another job. So they're like, did you work hours this week? And I said, yes. And so I, I don't know. Um, like my situation is complicated. I didn't just have one job. So it said I got approved. And then when I filed my first weekly claim, that's pending. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those, like, because you still have some hours or something, they have. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. Like, I don't know if they have to call all my jobs and like find out how much I actually work for them. I I have Uh, no idea. They don't tell me what it is and there's nothing I can do to make me go faster. So. Yeah, something you know. tells me we don't have the staffing to be like calling around and make sure everybody like is. I don't know. I it's almost like yeah, you should I hire no some idea. people, uh, <laughs> but for like a, for a job of denying people benefits, that would be so stupid. Hiring, I mean, deny benefits. This would, if ever there were a time where they should probably not worry about checking on all the things they're supposed to check on, this would be probably a pretty good time. <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, just we shall morally see. won't, but yeah. Anyway, cool. Well, on that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Critical Support. Um, stay healthy, stay safe. Um, don't go outside. Hey. Stay the fuck at home. My brother, homie. Tired of running, tired of hunting. My own kind, but we're tired of Tires are steady screeching. The driver is rubbing.
be seeing me a well for the drought. Uh, see, all I know uh, is taking notes on taking this life for granted. Granted, if you provoke uh, my best days, uh, I stress days. Don't forgive me for my sins, but I know. My best days, uh, I stress days. Uh, say, fuck the world, uh, my sex slave. Uh, money, pussy, and greed, what's my next crave? Whatever it is, know it's my next grave. Uh, tired of running, tired of running. Tired of tumbling, tired of running, uh, tired of tumbling. Back was my mama say, see a pastor, give me a promise. What if today was the rapture and you completely tarnished? The truth has set you free, so to me, be completely honest. You dying of thirst, you dying of thirst. So hop in that water and pray that it works.